0: The insert in your bulletin has the scripture reading for today, so please follow along as we read from Genesis chapter 11. Listening now to God's holy and inherent word. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we return these tithes, these gifts, these offerings to you because they have in your grace come to us from your hand. And as we ourselves prepare to sit beneath your word, we pray that you would meet each of us where we are by your grace, that you would meet those of us who walk through these doors and find ourselves this morning anxious and some hurt and some bitter and uh, some perhaps too comfortable, so comfortable we have forgotten our true dependence upon you for every breath. We pray that you would meet those of us who are Doubting and skeptical, that you would meet those of us who are joyful, those of us who are excited to be here, as well as those who are wondering how they ever came to be here. Father, we pray that you would meet us where we are in your grace, and that beneath all of these varying symptoms, you would remind us this morning that we really are all the same, because we are all. Far more broken than we could ever imagine. So we pray that you would reveal our, us to ourselves, but we pray also that you would reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would remind us that in him and because of his person and work it can be true, that at the same time we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. In the gospel, we are also far more loved, far more secure far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. We pray this morning that you would lift our eyes to that hope in Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Go ahead and dismiss the children now to Children's Church, children ages 3 to 6. You can make your way to the back of the sanctuary and find your way to Children's Church. Well, I've been gone for two Sundays now, um, so happy New year. Um, this morning, we are starting a new series uh, that we're, that's going to take us through probably about the next ten weeks or so. It's going to be a series on relationships, uh, how our relationships are broken on the one hand, but on the other hand, we realize and know that we are made for relationships um, and discover our real and deep need for friendship and what our conflicts reveal about us and how we forgive one another and keep ourselves from bitterness, how we, uh, how we speak to one another and show hospitality and practice intimacy and vulnerability with one another and how we handle power and the differences between us. We'll cover some of the uh, all of those things in this series, but to introduce the series, I, I want us to start thinking together about how we all need an identity. Um, we desperately need a definition, all right? We need a name for ourselves, we need to know who we are if we are to have value and worth, if we're to know that we matter in this life, um, because all of our living flows out of our identity. And, and to help us start thinking about this, I, I want to read you a quote. If there ever was someone who consistently worked to reinvent herself over the course of her career, it's the pop singer and artist Madonna, okay? Okay. In fact, in 2004, um, Madonna's tour was called the Reinvention Tour. Um, And and in an old interview in Vanity Fair, Madonna said this. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my life has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in this life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. So you hear the fear, and you can't even say that it's a fear of failure or a fear, fear of being bad. The real terror that she says is pushing her is a fear of insignificance, right, uh, to not matter. It's the terrible fear of being mediocre or uninteresting, to be found to be unimportant, right, to in the end not be somebody special, but listen closely to Madonna, and you will realize that it's more than even just a fear, right? It's really slavery. My struggle has never ended, she says, and it probably never will. We're going to have to be a little patient this morning to get to see all of this unfold in this story about the Tower of Babel. But I do want you to understand this. Madonna's fear in slavery... And actually, your fear and your slavery and mine, it is driving us in extremely deep and profound ways. And it's nothing new, right? It's as old as Genesis. We have a desperate need to matter, to be important, to be valuable, to be significant, to be somebody, to not be forgotten. We know it deep in our bones. We need to make a name for ourselves. We need to have a name for ourselves, an identity, a true sense of self. And this story in Genesis about the Tower of Babel, it may be new to you, or you may remember hearing this when you were a little child. But this morning, new or old, I want us to see four things in this passage. I want us to see glory affirmed, glory twisted, glory fractured, and glory redeemed. I'll tell you those as we go so you remember. First, glory affirmed. You know, having already read through the story, we know the punchline. We know that things don't work out well in the end, right, in this story. But before we get there, I do want you to notice this, an affirmation of man's glory. See, the beginning of Genesis tells us that God made man in his own image, right? And that means a lot of things. But for our purposes this morning, I want to focus on two primary ways that we reflect God's image. First, we reflect his image by being relational beings, by having relationships and being in relationships, right? God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from all eternity, he has existed in relationship with himself. His very essence is relationship. And so he made us relational. And second, being made in his image means that we reflect God's creativity. Right? He is a God who creates, and we cultivate and we bring to fruition and creation what we envision. Our glory is a reflected glory, right? We reflect the image of God in our relationships and in our in an, and in our creativity. And it's all here in Genesis chapter 11. Mankind is coming together relationally, right? Speaking one language and having the same words, right? We read these things in verses 1 through 3. They're communicating, they're coordinating, they're planning, they're reflecting together, right? They're dreaming and envisioning together. But in verses 3 and 4, we also see that mankind is coming together together. To create, to make bricks, and to build a city, and to build a tower, right? Exercising dominion over God's creation, right? Using resources to build and to achieve and to cultivate. Seeing potential and exercising real resolve to bring that potential into actuality. Architecture, construction, production. See, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, whether you believe this or not, I can with very good conscience tell you this, that you are amazing, right? All of creation is amazing, but humanity in particular is breathtaking because, you know, the rocks and the hills and the trees and the animals, they aren't reflecting and pondering and coming together, right? They're not coming together in order to dream and to create and to build beauty and art, See, I fear that Christians often neglect this, that we are so quick to rush to our brokenness and fail to see our glory, the glory that we were made to reflect. But the Bible doesn't do that. And God doesn't do that. He doesn't rush by your glory. In Psalm 8, for example, David, the psalmist writes, when I look at your heavens... See, that's the affirmation of glory that I don't want us to rush by, even in this story of Genesis chapter 11. If you've ever been on the water before, maybe you're at a lake and you're standing on the pier and you and you look over the edge of the pier and you see your reflection in the water. Right. It's it's imperfect. It's incomplete. It's a little blurry, maybe choppy, but it's your reflection. And all of creation, the Bible is telling us, reflects God's glory, right? Sure, that's what David is saying. The heavens, the moon, the stars, they are the work of God's fingers reflecting his glory. He has set them in place. But the galaxies, the stars, the moons, the rivers, the mountains, they are like ponds reflecting God's glory. It's there, but it's blurry, it's choppy, and it's incomplete. The story of the Bible is that you, you and me, we are like mirrors made to reflect God's glory. A sharp, clear, distinct, bright reflection in comparison to the reflection in a pond. We are crowned, God says, with glory and honor. And that is most certainly seen when we relate to one another. And when we exercise creativity and we strive and we dream and we work to cultivate, you and I can only begin to realize the beauty of our reflected glory when we embrace our relationships and our work. God built you and me to find deep satisfaction in who he made us to be. See, for us to move away from relationships or to move away from work and embracing work, is to move farther and farther away from being truly human. Now, second, let's consider together glory twisted. Look, I hope you know that even in reading this passage in Genesis chapter 11, there is nothing morally wrong with bricks, mortar, cities or towers, even tall towers. There's nothing morally wrong with that. And glimmers and glints of, God, of man's glory break through and they are affirmed in that. But Genesis 11, 11, it is clearly making the point that man's glory was twisted. See, we don't have to guess how. We don't have to guess why. We don't have to guess to what end man's glory was twisted. There's nothing sinful about bricks, mortars, and even towers. Ah, but the motivation that we see in Genesis chapter 11. Look at verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, fear was driving Madonna. And fear was driving these men. Fear of dispersal. Fear that we won't matter. Fear that we'll be insignificant. Fear that we will be forgotten. And if we're honest, the same fear is pushing and driving us. It's a desire Right, pushing within us to make a name for ourselves, to achieve an identity for ourselves, something that says, this is who I am. This is my reputation. This is my legacy that will last and go on. And that right there is the twist. That's the bend and the corruption, not reflecting God's glory, but using his gifts to promote our own. Right? To build a name for ourselves. Right? To make sure our reputation is upheld and protected. Right? So that to make sure our interest and our honor is not neglected. To ensure that we aren't forgotten and that we aren't scattered. The story in Genesis 11 is a story of humanity twisting and turning away from facing God and reflecting His glory. Twisted. Right. And turned in on ourselves, grasping and clutching after our own agendas, our own comfort and security and honor and reputation, grasping and striving, trying to achieve a name for ourselves. Listen, there's this real interesting story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. It's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus was this poor, sick troubled beggar who sat outside the home of a rich wealthy comfortable and healthy man and in the story that Jesus told both men eventually died and when they died poor Lazarus was welcomed into heaven and the rich man went to hell now listen here's the story that Je- here's the question that Jesus story begs about the rich man and Lazarus why does one of the characters in Jesus' story have a name, Lazarus, and the other remains nameless? And here's the answer. If you seek your identity and you try to find a name for yourself with your wealth and you lose your wealth, then you are nothing. See, you were a rich man or you are Nothing. You bent and turned and twisted glory to make a name for yourself, but it couldn't possibly last forever. And it's not just money. What happens when the approval of others is is really what we seek and how we seek our name? I once heard someone say that a true Southerner would rather die than be embarrassed. That's disturbing, right? Reputation, without that approval and acceptance... I'm nothing right? or achievement in your career. Why is it that every time our country falls into a depression or a recession, the, the suicide rate skyrockets? Right. Without this job, without this career, without this success to define me, I'm no one. And we try to achieve a name through all sorts of things, right? Through the accumulation of power or through our parenting or through our attractability of the opposite sex, right? Fragile, vulnerable, and fleeting. In the end, our effort to make a name for ourselves leaves us without a name is what this story is telling us. You know, we said in in the last point that all of creation is a pond. But you and I were created to be mirrors, right? Think with me about how mirrors work, right? This isn't complicated stuff here, right? Uh, Mirrors reflect light, right? The glass that's backed with foil or silver or whatever, it faces and reflects the light and gives a clear, distinct picture and, and reflection, right? Mirrors, here's what mirrors don't generate light. They only reflect light. And twisted and turned away from the light, the mirror cannot work. It cannot reflect. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, that we all want to believe that the light or that the glory is coming from within ourselves, right? That it's, not, that it's native to us. He wrote this, thus depth beneath depth and subtlety within subtlety. There remains some lingering idea of our own, our very own attractiveness. It is easy to acknowledge, but almost impossible to realize for long that we are mirrors whose brightness, if we are bright, is wholly derived from the sun that shines upon us. Surely we must have a little, however little native luminosity. Surely we can't be quite Creatures. See, we want to believe that we can make a name for ourselves turned away from the sun. St. Augustine famously wrote that man's nature was incurvatus in se, which I don't know Latin, but I'm told means turned or curved inward on oneself. He's saying that fallen humanity is naturally twisted and turned away from the sun, from the brightness of God's glory. Bent away from the light, we are naturally withering in death and darkness. See, here's what we need to realize. We are grasping and striving to make a name for ourselves through our performance, or reputation, success, or acceptance, right? And that striving is really, really deep it's compulsive. It's enslaving. It turns us furious, right? And and despairing and bitter whenever we're criticized, because any criticism of our performance or reputation or whatever, it, it, it threatens, it's an attack on our identity. But at the same time, it also turns us puffed up Arrogant and condescending when we feel that we have achieved a name for ourselves through our efforts. It's a theme running through all of our lives, right? And it's flaring up in all of our relationships because broken and sinful, we are naturally incurvitas in say. We are naturally twisted and turned in on ourselves. Now, let's keep moving. Third, I want us to think about the fractured glory in this passage. And here's what I mean by fracture. These people had come together, right, to build a city and to build a tower, to make a monument to themselves and to make a name for themselves. And cities in the ancient world, you understand, they were places of security. They were places of safety. They were places of hope. Cities had walls around them, right? And within the city, you were protected from the hostile wilderness and the peoples outside. In cities, there were opportunities. In cities, there was community. In cities, there was, there was help. What was their big fear, right? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Lest we be cast out and away and be unsafe and vulnerable and wondering and fractured and fragmented and alone. But what's this story saying? Fearing dispersal. They sought their own glory to make a name for themselves, and it led to the very thing they feared, to their dispersal. This is why the author uses the same Hebrew word in verses 8 and 11 for dispersal. God came down and confused their language. He imagined the confusion and the rifts and the tension and the frustration and the anger when it became impossible For them to communicate. Fractured relationships and creativity. They were dispersed and scattered. In the world you and I inhabit, it is a fractured world. It's a world of fractured glory. Its fissures and its cracks spread through every nook and cranny of our lives, right? And see, the the pain of it all, the pain of it all is that when we move... In our humanity to relate to one another, those fissures and those fractures and those broken places, they constantly get bumped. Lewis Smeads commented on a hard lesson learned in marriage, one that that many of us learned the hard way, because we know we were made for a relationship, right? And so we want to marry. That one right person, right? The one that will complete us. The one that will fill up our lives with joy and heal us. And here's the hard lesson Smeeds very succinctly puts here and summarizes. No one ever marries the right person, right? The one we hope will heal us winds up hurting us. The person we hope to complete us, really shows us our brokenness, right? The person we hope that will fill us with joy, they often lead us down the road of disappointment. You feel this in your relationships, don't you? To be alone, you know it—it it is to be less than human, right? But to be vulnerable and open with one another, to move towards one another is a terrible risk of pain. Ensuring that our brokenness, our fractures, and our fissures get bumped. That's a really hard pill for us to swallow, right? And it's there in Genesis 11. The fear of dispersal, of aloneness, of fracture became a reality when man was twisted and turned away from God's glory. It's a really hard pill to swallow. But I want to suggest to you in this passage that what we see is God chasing that bitter pill with mercy. Right? The Hebrew scholars, Kiel and Delich, they comment on this passage That the firm establishment of an ungodly unity, the wickedness and audacity of men would have led to fearful enterprises. But God determined by confusing their language to prevent the heightening of sin through ungodly association and to frustrate their design. It's a little hard to follow audibly, I know. But what they're saying is that in God's very act of judgment, there is mercy. God is saying in verse six that unchecked this wickedness. would flower into unimaginable horror and terror. Turned away from the life-giving heat of the sun, the flowers would shrivel and wither and become distorted and dead. But for those of you in relationships, which is all of us, right, there is a certain mercy from God, even in our most fractured, painful moments of relationships. I know that sounds weird. But it's true. I've often said that that paper cuts are terrible, right? They're terrible not, not because if you get one, you might bleed to death and you need to be rushed to the ER. Um, and they're not terrible because the pain is so unbearable. They are terrible because you usually get paper cuts on one of your fingers. And after the initial cut, you forget the paper cut is there. Until you go to grab a pen and the pressure aggravates that cut or until you reach into a bag of salty potato chips and the salt gets in there and it stings and burns. Right. Or until you go to wash your hands and the soap gets in there and it stings, it gets inside that wound, inside that cut and stings. We are made for relationships. To be alone is to be less than human but twisted and broken and curved in on ourselves, relationships, they are often poking and prodding and aggravating the open wounds of our brokenness, right? We move towards someone with hope. This time it'll be different, but we get burned again. And listen to me, the closer the relationship, the more intense the pain, right? You could hurt me, but not like my best friend could hurt me. And my best friend could hurt me, But not like my spouse could hurt me, right? The closer the proximity, the deeper and more profound the pain and the sting and the burn of fractured relationships. But I'm telling you in this point here, hidden in the fracture itself, in the hurt itself, in the disappointment and in the sorrow is mercy. When you have a paper cut and the salt or the soap gets in there and burns, you don't blame the potato chips and you don't blame the soap right you realize that you are in you are cut and you are broken and you are in need of healing and when relationships bump into our fractures and fissures the pain is mercifully reminding us that we are cut and wounded and no brother no sister no parent no friend no spouse could ever shine upon you and give you life right no achievement no amount of wealth no, no amount of success or pure approval could ever give you life. The pain is meant to peel our eyes off of ourselves in order that we would look somewhere else for a name. It, right, in, in order that we would find somewhere else an identity that can survive criticism and success and any circumstance, even death itself, like for Lazarus. And that brings us to our final point this morning, glory redeemed. Here's, here's my little bridge from fractured glory to glory redeemed. Tim Lane and Paul Tripp, they write in their book on relationships. They have this profound statement, I think. They say, every painful thing we experience in relationships is meant to remind us of our need of Jesus. And every good thing we experience is meant to be a metaphor for what can only be found in Jesus let me make just a, a couple of brief remarks about set the setting of this story and the larger story of the Bible. And what I think is the answer to the cry of Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is a story of humanity, even in its glory, gone wrong, right? And it, begin, it begins with humanity together, but it ends in humanity dispersed and alone. It's a story that begins with one language and the same words, but it ends with confused language, right? And different words. There's this weird story in the beginning of the book of Acts, right? Which follows the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And the disciples found themselves huddled, huddled together when the Holy Spirit was poured out on these men. And we are told in that story that the disciples began to speak in tongues, right? In different languages. It happened on the day of Pentecost, you may remember, and there were people from all kinds of different nations and tribes, but they were all hearing the disciples speak in their different languages. And they were amazed because they were all in their own tongue. They were not confused, but they were all hearing the same story of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of a sermon preached by Peter in Acts chapter two, they all said to Peter with one voice and they said this to the other apostles as well. Brothers, what shall we do? And this is what Peter said to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know what I think Acts 2 is telling us, among other things, is this. That Jesus came to undo the Tower of Babel. He came to restore and redeem us. That's what you need to see in Acts chapter 2, among other things. This story of great reversal. He came... The king came to put us back together, not just individually, but relationally. He came to set everything that is wrong in this world right again. Listen to me. We are all of us. Desperate for a name. We have to have an identity. We cannot live without an identity. And this fear that we aren't somebody, that we don't matter, it is pushing us and pushing us. And here's what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus says. This is what the gospel says to you and me. God himself came down. And his name was the name above every name. And he saw you and me fearful and fractured and twisted and turned away. But he so loved you that he willingly came and he lost his name in order that he could give you a name that would last forever. A name that can survive all the ups and downs of life. He came to give you an identity and an identity that says you are loved through and through and completely By the king of kings. The one who with his fingers drew the heavens and the stars, right? In the skies. He values you so much that he gave his life for you. The one who from all eternity has existed in perfect relationship of love. He welcomes you in. And he covers you in the robes of his son's righteousness. So that you would know forever... His never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable and forever love of you. Real quick, I, I'm, I know I'm going a little long this morning, but I want to give you three things that you need to do if you were to get this name and understand this name that he's given you. First, you get this name by stopping. I mean you stop trying to make a name for yourself. You stop trying to achieve a name for yourself. Some of you, I know in my saying this, you are going to mishear me. And you are going to think, okay, stop trying to make a name for myself in my career and peer approval and acceptance and money and all that kind of stuff, being a good parent or whatever. And I need to start doing more religious things. You completely misheard me. You get this name by stopping it all. Right By stopping even all the religious things, even all of your efforts to achieve a better morality for yourself. You get this name by stopping, by stopping it all. For some of you, it is not the bad things in your life that are keeping you out of the kingdom and away from this name. It is all the good things in your life. Because you've started to think some of this brightness must be native to me, must be coming for me. Now, the first thing you have to do is you have to stop. And second, you get this name by receiving. Listen, the one thing the gospel requires of you in order for you to have a name and an identity that will last forever and ever is nothing. And the problem that most of us face is that so, so very few of us have it, right? The good news I am telling you about this morning Really, is this free? Don't let anyone else tell you different because I don't care who you are or what you've done or where you have been. If you come to Jesus with the empty, outstretched hand of the beggar, you will receive a name that lasts forever. This name cannot be achieved by you. Why is that? Because this name was achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ in your place and you must receive it. And third you get this name and understand this name by beginning to live for God's glory. See, it's death to be curved in on ourselves. It's the source of all our trouble, all our self-centered, narcissistic ways that we are turned in on ourselves, seeking our own glory. And this is why Jesus, throughout the Gospels, says to us in so many different ways that only when you lose your life will you find your life. You will never get a sense of self by seeking a sense of self it comes indirectly like the people in this passage seek your own glory your own in your own agenda your own comfort your own security your own reputation your own happiness and you will lose it but turn and face the sun right the bright life-giving sun of god's glory and you will find a name that lasts forever so how, how do you do, how do how do we do that? How do we do all of these things? Let me tell you, when the beauty of a savior who lost his name to freely give you a name, when that sun comes up and dawns on you, it will begin to thaw your icy heart. This That good news will warm you. That good news alone will set you free so that you can finally put your compulsions down and stop and receive. And it ushers you in to the beauty you know you were made for. Because you know you were made for a beauty larger and grander and bigger than yourself. And this beauty pulls you in to heal you, to complete you, and to redeem you, and to set you free to move out in all of your relationships, for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word, even in stories that maybe we've forgotten for a long time, like the story of the Tower of Babel, how it reminds us of the brokenness of our lives and our hearts, and the ways that we so often seek our own glory. The ways in which we are turned in on ourselves and away from your face. Father, we pray that in your mercy, you would use even the pain of our relationships, even the disappointment and the hurt of our relationships to wake us up. To wake us up in order that we would realize That we can only find a name when we stop. That we can only find a name. Not by achieving. But by receiving the name. That your son has purchased for us. In his life, death and resurrection. And father we pray that in the freedom of the gospel. We would indeed. Be ushered into a story. Into a beauty. Larger and grander. And bigger than ourselves. That we would be pulled in and that we would be healed, and that we individually would be redeemed, and that all our relationships would be redeemed by grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.